So welcome everyone to the next episode of Paving the Way Home and we're delighted to be joined again by Father Eunan MacDonnell of the, uh, the Provincial of the uh, of the Irish Solutions and I've actually when I've introduced you the last time Father Eunan and correct me if I'm wrong you're also the spiritual director of the Divine Mercy Conference here in Ireland is that correct? Or at least that you were. Correct. Yeah. You are, you still correct. are. Excellent. Yeah. Very good because uh, every time after we've gone off camera um, I'll be driving the car like oh Keep me in task for a union about that. That's uh, that's fantastic. Um, so before we begin, begin for a union, would you lead us in an opening prayer? Since our theme is on Francis de Sales, I'm going to uh, take a prayer from Saint Francis de Sales. Excellent. Which is a very appropriate prayer for the particular um, context in which we find ourselves. Excellent. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do not be anxious. Do not look forward to tomorrow. For the same everlasting Father who takes care of you today will take care of you tomorrow and every day. Either he will shield you from suffering or he will give you unfailing strength to carry it. So be at peace and put aside all anxious thoughts and imaginings. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh, as you're saying, today, uh, so all along, we've been doing a series on, on prayer and Christian meditation. And today we're going, moving on to uh, a topic that's very dear to your heart. Uh, and obviously being uh, a solution, uh, and that's on uh, Francis de Sales. And in particular, we're going to go from, um, you know, I guess, as, as you were saying, one particular maxim uh, let us belong to God in the midst of so much busyness. Um, and that's something that applies to every single one of us uh, in life in today's world. It is, you know, our lives, our, our world is so chaotic, so busy. Um, and how to how to make time for God and live for God in the midst of this chaos. So um, before before we begin into that, could I ask you just to give us an introduction uh, into Francis de Sales, just for anyone who wouldn't be that familiar with him? Yeah, if I was on Mastermind, I think that would be my chosen topic. Excellent. I think so, because um, Francis de Sales, in fact, actually in 2022, it will be 400 years of his death. So he was born in 1567. And he's actually a doctor of the church. Now, he's very well known in French-speaking uh, areas, but in the English-speaking world, he's not as well known, unfortunately, although he's becoming much more popular now. When we talk about Salesians, for example, we're Salesians of Don Bosco. And St. John Bosco was, was born 200 years after Francis de Sales. And he takes Francis de Sales as his patron, and we live his spirituality of loving kindness and gentleness. But there are many religious orders that take Francis de Sales as their patron. Most notably, the Visitation Sisters, a contemplative order that were founded by Francis de Sales and also Jane Francis de Chantal, his great friend. I might talk a little bit about them later on. But there's at least 40 religious groups that take their spirituality from Francis de Sales. You've got the missionaries of Francis de Sales, you've got the office of Francis de Sales, and you've got many, many lay groups of Francis de Sales because for Francis de Sales, 400 years 
before the Second Vatican Council, he was speaking about the universal call to holiness. And that's why he is referenced in the Vatican documents for that. So he's very much a man beyond his times, if you like, in that sense, because when we look at the history of spirituality, at the beginning of Christianity, it was very much a lay movement. But then what happened was when kind of it became like a kind of associated with the powers that be, okay, then kind of it, it got kind of um, contaminated by the values of the world. So for in reaction to that, you had the whole response of monasticism, which was a withdrawal from the world. And therefore, what happened then, spirituality became more a withdrawing from the world. And what we find with Francis de Sales is that the reverse movement is going back into the world, the spirituality that's immersed in the world. Having said that, what Francis de Sales does is to take what happens in the monastic life, which basically is a return to your heart, having God at the center of your heart, and to bring that now into the context of the world. So you live monasticism in the world, because if God has your heart, then you can move into the world and become his presence in the world. That's fantastic. And Francis de Sales, um, you mentioned that already, is you're saying he's a doctor of the church. Correct. That's, uh, th th that's amazing. Like, uh, personally, I've come across Francis de Sales uh, very much, uh, particularly in the, in, in the last year, and um, uh, in, in particularly a, a book um, by uh, Ralph Martin, The Introduction, um, or The Fulfillment of All Desire, and very much talking about, um, you know, becoming a saint on the path to sainthood in today's world. And he references Francis de Sales very, very much. And even in recent times, I've been coming, I came across uh, one of one of his writings in particular was the, um, oh gosh, I'm, the, the, the title has just slipped my mind up, but it's like the introduction the, the to the holiness. To the devout life. To the devout life and say to the holiness, that was it. That was it, because I was even, I even only had it, uh, looking at it again last night and that, and it's a, it's a fascinating, he's a fascinating, fascinating saint, because he, he seemed, of all the saints out there, in particular, he seems to be the saint is able to relate very much to the to the lay person in the world. Like, for example, another very good um, saint that I very much like is Saint John of the Cross. But when you look at Saint John of the Cross's writings, and even at the very start, they say, "Well, this is very much anyone can read it and follow it." But it's very much directed when he wrote it, particularly at those in monastic life. But Francis de Sales, uh, his writings in particular, can very much reach reach out to people of all ages uh, and, and of all walks of life. Yeah, and th that's very important. That's his spiritual classic, really, the introduction to the white light. And I actually have it here, and I want to quote from it because it really re reinforces what you're saying about the spirituality for lay people in that sense. So bear with me when I quote directly from yeah. Francis. Okay, he says, devotion, the spiritual life, must be exercised in different ways by the gentleman, the worker, the soldier, the servant, the prince, the married woman, the widow or widower, and the young. Not only is this true, but the practice of devotion must also be adapted to the strength, temperament, activities, and duties of each person. It is proper for a bishop to want to live a solitary life like a Carthusian. Is that proper? 
or for a married man to want to own no property like a Franciscan, for the skilled laborer to spend as much time in church as a Trappist, for a religious to be constantly at the service of his neighbor as a bishop is, such a spiritual life would be preposterous, confusing, and indeed impossible. Still, this is a very common fault. And the world which does not distinguish between real devotion and the indiscretion of those who merely think themselves devout, murmurs at devotion itself and blames it even though devotion cannot prevent such disorders. True devotion does us no harm whatever, but instead perfects all things. When it goes contrary to one's lawful vocation, it is undoubtedly false. That's powerful. That is absolutely, that is absolutely powerful. Um, and, and just, I, I'm going to, I, I, I'm going to put the link to, to this book as well, as well as all your ones uh, in the description box uh, on the YouTube channel and, and, and people will be able to see it on screen now as well. But that's the introduction to The Devout Life by Francis de Sales. And for the union, you, uh, you, your doctorate, your doctorate was on Francis de Sales. It was indeed, yeah, no, it, it's a bit heavy going. I wouldn't really recommend it if you're starting off with Francis de Sales. I'm not too sure <laughs> if it's actually still in print, okay. Um, yeah, but what I would recommend though, if you're interested in the spirituality of Francis de Sales, I'm not recommending myself, but I wrote the book called God Desires You. Okay, and that's the book which gives you an introduction into the spirituality of Francis de Sales. I actually checked on Amazon just to see if there were any available. And there's one available, for $796, okay, now, wow. I, <laughs> I don't recommend that one. You can get it for much, much cheaper price at um, embracedbygod.org, which is the Oblates of Francis de Sales website in America. So they've published that book. Now the title, God Desires You, I took it from a phrase in the Treatise on the Love of God of St. Francis de Sales, which is volume four and volume five of his collective works. Volume three would be the introduction to the devout life. Why did I choose that phrase? Because in that phrase, Francis says, when we look at Jesus on the cross, he says, his wounded side is like a window through which we look at God and God the Father looks at us. So we have access to the Father through the wounded side of Jesus, and the Father has access to us through the wounded side of Jesus. So therefore, when God the Father looks at us, he can only look at us in and through the wounded side of Jesus, and that's how he sees us. So when he looks at his beloved Son, he sees us in the Son. That's, that's absolutely powerful image. Like, just listening to you there, there's like there, there there is so much to uh, like go, going back to the to the way we're describing Lexi Divina. There's so much to chew on um, there. That is absolutely uh, absolutely powerful. Um, now, for you beforehand, you were talking about the maxims of uh, of Francis Sales. First of all, just for a very practical question, what's a maxim? Okay, a maxim is simply a saying. It's a saying. Like for example. He would have, um, one of the maxims that he would have is, there is nothing as strong as gentleness and nothing as gentle as real strength, for yeah. example. Yeah, 
that's powerful. And the, the maxim you're going talking about today, then in particular, is let us belong to God in the midst of so much busyness. Now, this is an absolutely ideal time and an ideal topic because, okay, as we're saying, we're living in a society, in a world, in a time of our age where life is absolutely chaotic between work, between racing, everything. And, you know, even with technology always at the end of our fingertips, that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. Um, but just like at the moment, as we're recording this, it's um, Thursday, the 29th of October. Um, we're in the middle of um, another level five lockdown. So that's why in particular, I was thinking, you know, this talk uh, that you're talking about and this particular topic is actually ideal for this time to, you know, to help people uh, to reflect uh, and, and to see and how to almost balance the busyness of the secular world and, and everyday life uh, with, with God and prayer and a relationship with God. So I'm just going to go back to that maxim, let us belong to God in the midst of so much busyness. And I want to really examine the three elements that are contained in that. So the, the talk basically will be based on the three elements. And I want you to bring me back to these if I fail to do so. Okay. The first element is let us belong. And what does it mean to belong to God? The second one is God. Which God do we belong to? And the third element is in the midst of so much busyness. So in an active life, are we, are we only belonging to God when we're at prayer? Or do we still belong to God when we're busy in activities? Excellent. Um, that's absolutely fantastic, particularly for me personally now, as I'm listening to you talking, I'm like, uh, like all of them in particular, but as you uh, as I'm listening to the third one, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I definitely need a particular attention in this one. But so, okay, so the, the very first element, um, let us belong to God. And for that then, belonging, what does it mean to belong? Uh, this is a good question to ask yourself. For example, okay, if I was asked you to describe yourself, at some point, I'm quite sure, at some point, you will say to me that you're, you're married, that you, you have a wife, that you're a father, you have children. So can you say that the children belong to you and your wife belongs to you? And can you say that you belong to your wife and belong to your children? Is that possible to say? Yeah. And what do you mean when you say that? My understanding of it, um, and thank God for pre-recording and editing if I'm wrong, but my, <laughs> <laughs> my, under, my understanding uh, of this is that, uh, so for, for me to belong to my, to, to my wife is that I am I'm completely at service of my wife. And for, for her to belong to me, she is completely... Uh, at service of me and that now I know in, in in today's world that idea of a man being of service to a woman and a woman being of service a man can be misconstrued and misinterpreted but from the Christian way it's a, a complete self-giving over to the other person that's my own understanding of it but correct me if I'm wrong no who am I to correct you because you belong to your wife and she belongs to you but the reason why I'm asking the question is therefore can you say my wife or my children yeah, I can. When you say that, then, are you saying they belong to you or you possess them? 
<laughs> um, that's a very good question. So do I say they belong to me or do I possess them? I would say that I, they belong to me. Yeah. You see, that's the difference between things and people. When it comes to things, we can possess things. We can never possess another person. And although you belong to your wife and she belongs to you and your children belong to you and you to them, the person always retains their freedom. And therefore, it's always a choice to belong to that person. And you renew that choice in small ways and big ways every day as well, too. And it's the same in our relationship with God. Okay. Therefore, God leaves us free to choose to belong to him or not to belong to him. But he truly frees it. He freely chooses even to belong to us. And that free choice is made in a particular way through the person of Jesus when he becomes one of us. And what happens therefore then, and this is key, central, therefore what happens therefore is when Jesus becomes human and becomes one of us, as St. Francis de Sales would say, even if we hadn't sinned, God still would have become flesh in Jesus because otherwise we would have been outside of God. But now because he's become human, all of humanity is now within God, inside of God, because of what God has done in Jesus. And being Christian is simply a recognition of that, a recognition of what God the Father has done in and through his Son, and pouring the Spirit into our hearts so that we belong to God in a unique way. So therefore, in the baptism of Jesus, when God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, he says the same about you and me. You are my beloved now because we're in the son. That's what that's actually, as, as you're saying that very last point, uh, one of the recent episodes we've had was with Father Philip Kemi in the Diocese of Rafo on the sacrament of baptism. And he was just making that exact point uh, where he's saying, um, you're my, to all of us now, you are my beloved son. Like just going back to, on, on that point you made there, um, it just goes to show now, I, I, I don't want to, ramble off point either but it just goes to show the importance of uh of free will you know sometimes you know when we when we particularly as as children for me anyway as, as a child growing up and begin to learn the faith we begin thinking of this real all-powerful god that we must you know in order to curb his anger we must submit to him and do everything and tick the boxes and that but just listening to you there the the, the whole thing that we belong to him um and that it's it's the most i don't even know how to put it into the correct words but this is it's, it's the most one of the most loving descriptions um that i've heard of that relationship between us and god and that brings me to you know i go back and forward but it brings me to that point about which god are we actually belonging to which is one of the central things and what I want to kind of maybe underline or emphasize here when we're looking at God, because we have different ideas about God and thoughts about God, which are not necessarily in harmony with the God of Jesus. So our ideas of God and the images we have, sometimes they have to be dismantled and broken down so that we can truly embrace the God that Jesus reveals to us, the God of love that Jesus reveals to us, the God of compassion, the God of mercy, the God of forgiveness. But all through scripture, through the Old Testament into the New Testament, 
This is the hallmark and the essence of God is a God of love and compassion. But what Jesus does for us, and this is terribly important for us to understand, is that he allows us to participate in his relationship to the Father. So therefore, what happens, for example, if, I, if you met me, okay, I was introducing my father to you. I said, this is my father. That would make sense to you, okay? So I belong to my father and he belongs to me in some way. But if I was introducing my father to you as this is our father, what would you think? I think the first thing you would think is, okay, where are the rest of the siblings, okay? And I'm sure he doesn't mean that he and I are brothers, okay? But that's actually what happens in and through Jesus is that my father, as he says, becomes our father. So therefore we become his siblings and therefore we become his brothers and sisters and the father becomes our father. And I guess, so just listen to there, that is where the term then that we're the adopted uh, sons and daughters uh, of God. Exactly, exactly. And to go back again then to what you were saying about the God that we believe in or the God that is revealed through scripture. <clears throat> when we look, there's some fantastic, wonderful images for God in scripture. Like God is like a father, but God is also like a mother. So your experience of fatherhood, of being a father, gives you a particular insight into what God the Father is like that I can't have. You have that experience. Just as your wife as mother has a particular insight into God that somebody who doesn't have children can't have. And for Francis Seals, that's the starting point. The starting point is always the human relationship because the human relationship reveals to you something about what God is like. So fatherhood and motherhood open up the window into understanding what God is truly like. What would you not do for your children? And if you're like that, what would God not do for you, you who are his child? That's fantastic. Um what you say there is absolutely spot on you hit the nail on the head and as a husband and a father of uh, of three daughters um so my eldest daughter jessica she will be three on christmas eve and um just kind of uh, i'm linking this to a point that you just made there but how we learn in our relationship and in, in, in a family about the person of god there's just one particular instant i just want to go back to that when Jessica, she was born on Christmas Eve 2017, and when she was about three months old, the, I suppose, the, the, the nightly ritual was that she wouldn't go straight into her cot, so she had to sleep, fall asleep on our bed. I'd have to lie down next to her, and within 10, 15 minutes when she falls asleep, we're able to transfer into our cot. But I remember one particular night as I was putting her to sleep, and at this time uh, in my prayer life, I was really trying to get into the meditative prayer uh, of God with scripture. But at this time, she, this particular moment, she was just staring at me just before she fell asleep. And it was as if like the whole world was still, I was even afraid to breathe in case I, I, I uh, to breathe out loud in case I, I broke the silence. And she was just looking at me and there was a, a different, it was a different look that she had given before. And slowly she started putting her, hands over my nose and my eyes and just really really uh just kind of exploring my face uh and that and 
at that moment it just hit me i was like this is what our relationship is with god this is like this is what our relationship in a you know even when we go into silent meditative contemplative prayer with god this is it it's it doesn't necessarily have to be any word spoken but it's just god looking at us and we looking at god and just entering into that the heart speaking the heart i'm going off point here now but it's just that when you made that point about uh you know we can learn about you know our, our relationship with god through the relationship with family just that 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 particular incident uh just came to mind there yeah yeah you're not going off point at all actually you're really confirming the point in that sense and and if i mean that's an excellent an excellent image for understanding contemplative prayer which is receiving the gaze of God. Now, when you think of your daughter, was it Jessica, did you say? Jessica, yeah. yeah. When, 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 you, when you think of your daughter, Jessica, like for you, for her, you're her whole world. And that moment, okay, there was no one apart from her daddy in that sense. And that is how you are in God's eyes. And he wants you to receive that gaze. That's what prayer is, to receive the gaze of God, to receive that love that God has for you. Where, as Francis de Silla says, you're in God's hands as if you are his only concern, as if no one else existed. That's how God feels about you. And in order for us to really, like I'm beginning to see a link, I know there's a link between all these three elements, but the first two elements, in order for us to know I, I'm beginning, I, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm thinking as I'm talking here now, but as in order for us to know which God we belong to, it really, it really is important to know what it means to belong. Even that, that, that um, differentiation between belonging and possessing to know what it is to belong, because if we're, you know, thank God, I haven't been, I haven't really experienced any uh you know a, a abusive or relationship or anything like that in my life but uh I, i'm sure there, there are many people out there who have but if we you know sometimes we picture our relationship with god as a relationship where we belong to him we belong to him to keep him happy in order to keep him off our backs and that nothing bad will happen to us well that really determines then in our minds which god we belong to and on the other on the other side of the coin, if we if we truly know what it means to belong and 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 to truly experience that love of God, um, that too determines which God we belong to. Yes, and it is a journey. It's life's journey, really, in that sense. And the difficulty is that some of our images or our ideas of God can actually block us in our relationship to God, but. We have those ideas or images because of our life experience, you see, and things can happen to us and do happen to us. Therefore, that we sometimes unconsciously without realizing it. OK, uh, these things affect our relationship with God. And for example, if you've had your trust broken at an early age in childhood, for example, is going to be very difficult to trust God because you've got your defenses built up. And sometimes we have to become aware that we have defenses in place in order to allow God to slowly dismantle them if he's to get into our heart in that sense. So the thing is really, it's about self-awareness. And that's why prayer is important because when we take the time in quiet prayer, 
we often come to begin to discover things about ourselves first before we discover things about God, because we begin to understand, you know, something that's going on inside of us and how it can block me in my relationship with God. And maybe that's the area I need to invite God in to help me to dismantle that area, to help me to trust if my trust has been broken, to help me to trust, to realize that no matter what has happened to me at that level, at a human experience, God is not like the person who broke my trust, even if it's my father. That's not God, my father, who is different in that sense. But that's a real journey that has to take place within the person. That's a very, very valid point. It also, you know, even in the in the last week or two, since I was, you know, very much listening back over um, the talks, I know even at this point, there's some talks we've already recorded that haven't been released yet, and they will in in, in the, the next day or two, but just listening back over the, um, the talks and entering into that meditative, contemplative um, journey in our prayer with God, it was really hitting me how, and actually I had this conversation with my brother Kevin as well uh, and he was talking about another uh, how, uh, another form of contemplative prayer that a priest had told him recently and we, we just I was just thinking there how important it is to be almost be doing that examination of conscience style of thing in so far as going back into our past to learn from our experiences or even I guess relating to what you're just saying there that if there is healing that needs to be done, and if there's a barrier that's preventing us from moving forward, it's it's very it, it, it's nearly impossible for us to move forward in this, I suppose, journey of prayer without being able to go back and bringing this to God to bring down the barrier to allow Him to heal. As difficult and as painful as that is, but you know, I'm I guess I'm in in. I'm going around the bush here a small bit, but I suppose in, in some way what I'm thinking of is saying we have to be very careful of not just shutting down the, the barrier to the past, to whatever was going on, has gone on in our lives in the past. If that has not been brought to God, if that has not been healed or we've not maybe um, learned from experiences, whatever, because that is going to affect us going forward. What you're saying is very true. And the, the point is, for example, I remember like having a discussion with people like saying, for example, let's say somebody who's had a bad experience of their father, for example, therefore you should never talk to them about God the Father. But I actually think that's not true because if you've had a bad experience of God, of, of own fatherhood, then why should you deprive them of the experience of God who's a loving father? Okay, you have to be very careful and very sensitive in how you do it when you're dealing with someone, but why should they be deprived of what they really need? And that's how the enemy works. You see, the enemy works through lies because he's the father of lies. That's how he works. He tries to get into the place where we're wounded and to create a separation between us and God, a greater distance, because he knows if he can create that distance between us and God, Therefore, then we're much more ripe for the picking, if you like, in that sense. If you go back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, they walked with God in the cool of the evening. They walked with God. They were in companionship, intimate relationship with God the Father, Yahweh, the Lord God. But what happens 
the serpent tempts Eve. Now, it's very interesting here to realize that even the serpent knows that God exists because he talks to Eve about God. But what he does is he's very clever because he says, did God really tell you that? But by using the term God and not the Lord God, he shows that he's not in relationship with God. And this is what happens, you see. So Eve then begins to respond. And for that moment, she's seduced out of the relationship with the Lord God and talks to him about God. So when you talk to someone about God in that way, God has become an idea or a concept, no longer in relationship. But the Lord God means you have a covenant relationship with God. Just as you're married, for example, that's a covenant relationship. You can't have a covenant relationship with things. You can have a contract about things, but you can only have a covenant relationship with persons. It's the belonging. You belong to a person and they belong to you. That's a covenant because there's free will and free choice in it. And therefore to belong to God, we have to acknowledge and recognize God as our Lord God. Then we're in relationship with God. Any other ideas or images we have of God, which are not belonging to that relationship, can be used to create a distance between us and God. Like what you were saying earlier, for example, God the punisher or God the one who wants to inflict, you know, pain on us or stuff like that. That's not the God of Jesus. It's not the Lord God. And this is why there's a whole process that needs to take place in our thinking and in our feeling, which is why our thoughts and our feelings need to be evangelized by the word of God. So that the true God can therefore come to live and dwell within us, make his home in us. That term, again, as we're talking about that belonging to God, we belonging to God. And I'm just going back to this because this reminds me of a conversation I've had with someone recently where even just sitting in prayer with that term, the person was telling me that they almost like it took them nearly a whole year of their prayer was you know sitting before God and just trying to get get it into the heart that you know this this God who absolutely that if this person was the only person who ever lived God would still have come on earth and died on the cross for them and that this that we cannot even imagine the love that God has for us and the person was saying that the reason it took them so long was because they went through a life of being put down very easily a lot of being put down and put down and put down and because of that they had a very low esteem very very low confidence so all of a sudden when this term was put out that you know even the idea of Jesus thirsting on the cross for every single one of us specifically for this person um, and that this person belongs to a God. It was almost, they said there was this, and they could not get beyond it. Um, and again, I guess that just shows how, you know, uh, hurtful negative experiences can affect us going forward. And that this person really had to bring this to prayer, bring this to God and had to go through a whole process of healing. And with that, then, as they were explaining to me, their relationship with God just flourished. You're making a very valid and valuable point really in that sense if you even stay with that experience for example if you have the experience so the person has to 
kind of, it's almost like, um, you know, your computer, we reset it to the default position because we have a default position and sometimes we don't realize it. And our default position can be, especially when you're in crisis, you'll go back to the default position. A good question I like to ask too is, you believe God loves you, okay. When you sin, do you still believe God loves you as much? If you can say yes, okay, then um, that's excellent. If you can say, well, I'm not so sure, then there's something there, okay, that needs to be addressed or needs to be looked at, okay? So it's easy to say God loves you when you're feeling good or when you think things are going well or you think you're being good. Does God love you when you're not being good? Then? And do you, do you still believe that, okay, in that sense? So that's important. But what I would say is, even with that person, if you go back to the experience, Again, what was really holding them in bondage was the thinking process, was the thoughts about themselves, you see, and the way they felt about themselves. And sometimes the way we think about ourselves affects how we feel about ourselves. So therefore, when you're doing meditation or contemplation, you're trying to go beyond the thinking and the feeling to a deeper place. And this is why in this silent prayer, you connect with that deeper place within you with what Francis de Sales calls the heart which is the biblical understanding of the person. And he gives us a very good image, gives us a very good image to understand that. It's very similar to St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle. You go through the different mountains to get that, that deep place within yourself. And there you discover God is already present within you. The image that Francis de Sales uses is the temple, the image of the temple. And he says, just as the temple has all these various courts. They had the outside court for the Gentiles. Then you moved in the court for the women. You moved in the court for men. Then you moved further in the, all the courts until you got to the Holy of Holies. And no one was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies except the chief priest, the high priest. And he could only enter there once a year, okay? He says, we're like that. Our heart is the holy of holies, but often we live in these exterior places. We don't live in this place, this deepest place within us, where God is already present because we have received him at baptism. So through the Holy Spirit, the promise that was made by Jesus that the Father and the Son would come to dwell within us has taken place in baptism. So we don't have to go far to discover God because he's already dwelling within us. And if we realize that, we realize that we do not bring God, an absent God to anyone, because God is already dwelling in the person whom we encounter. It's very interesting that you mention uh, St. Teresa of Avila there in Interior Castles. It was a book that I picked up during my time in seminary in, uh, in Rome. It was actually on the, on the library uh, in front of me one day as I was writing essays and it's so, so frustrated and you know when you're doing exams or writing essays you all of a sudden it's when you go into cleaning mode in your room and every job that you always put off comes out but I was just have and I was just looking up and I just saw the interior crassels I picked it up and I could not put down that book and the point I'm about to make now I suspect is probably linked to the third element um and I'm into so much busyness but I remember particularly at the start of that book that Teresa of Avila was saying that you know she was she was using the it was well it, it, yeah it was one of her books it was it was she was using the example of a gardener 
with um, a, a watering can, whatever. But it, each time that they went from they went from the from the tap or the well uh, to the garden, they were just bringing one droplet of water. Yet their whole idea was to water the whole garden. But every time it was to it was bring one droplet of water. And the one the idea of that was like with prayer and with time, it takes it takes time, it takes patience. But at times it takes almost baby steps. Like in a world today where there's so much, so much busyness and running around, we almost, like, as we're talking about the interior castles there, we almost want to go from the, the very beginning stage, you know, into the interior castles in, 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 in 10 seconds, because that's what we, everything we have now is on the, is on, is on the uh, tips of our fingertips. And, um, and that, but I'd imagine that's probably linked to this third point. It is, yeah, a good way of getting into the third point. We'll get there. <laughs> no, but sorry, sorry. No, that wasn't even a that wasn't even a, a rude hit. I was just uh, it was came into no, my no, mind as you're talking. But it is no. What's it? You're right. We're getting there. Okay, and to go into that third point, belonging to God in the midst of so much busyness, I would like to go back to a question that Saint Francis de Sales would often ask Jane Francis de Chantal, and this is the key question. And the question you say is, who has your heart? Who has your heart? Because he said, if God has your heart and you belong to God, everything else will fit into place. So therefore, when you're at prayer, you will be present to God. But when you are busy, you will be present to God in your neighbor as well too. If God has your heart, whether you're busy or whether you're quiet, it makes no difference really in that sense. And he, he, he kind of compares it to breathing. He says, we breathe in the love of God and we breathe out the love of God with the inward breath and with the outward breath. Prayer is breathing in the love of God and service to our neighbor is breathing out the love of God. So the God we worship in prayer is the same God we serve in our neighbor. So therefore, if we're disturbed in prayer, we have to learn to leave God for God, to leave the God whom we're worshiping in prayer, to serve the God who now disturbs us in our neighbor. And therefore God speaks to us in prayer, but he also speaks to us through our neighbor. So therefore what we begin to understand is therefore that prayer is connected to service. It leads to service, and our service brings us back into prayer. And therefore, what we begin to see is that it's the double commandment of loving God and loving neighbor. Prayer and compassion. Love of God and service of neighbor. But in both cases, it is God who has our heart whom we belong to. When you're not present with your children, does that mean you love them any less? It doesn't, but your thoughts will go back to them during the day, even when you're busy. And it's the same with God. Like when we're busy doing things for God, our mind, our thoughts will sometimes go back to God. Okay. And this is what Francis de Sales calls, it's in the Christian tradition, arrow prayers or javelins, or I would call them text messages, where you take that moment to send a text message to God, just to say, God, oh, this is a difficult situation, God but I'm glad you're with me in it. Or, oh God, I'm feeling very anxious now. I, I need your help. Anyway, I, just include God. God wants to be included. 
God knows what's going on in your life, but he wants to be included. He wants you to talk to him about it, to let him know. Because it's a different thing from him knowing and you telling him. He wants you to know that he's interested in every detail of your life. Every detail. There is nothing insignificant to God. Everything about you is important to him. That's a very valid point. I'm, and I'm thinking of my own relationship now with, um, you know, even with my daughters, you know, like all day, every day, my wife is always, we're always, she's always in contact with me. Um, uh, when I'm out of work or whatever, you know, there'll always be messages, whatever. And now, you know, with phones, there's always pictures of what the girls are up to or whatever. That's fine. But Lana will, you know, Lana will tell me, of it could be anything even if it's a funny event whatever that went on with the girls today but when I come home from work even though I knew what went on I love hearing it from them directly themselves and to and, and that so I know exactly what happened I know what's going on and I know what the outcome was but to hear it from them themselves and to come up and to explain it to me in their very innocent way it's it gets it gets the heart racing in a, in a beautiful beautiful way and it, it's like that it's, as you're saying that God knows what's going on he knows the outcome but he wants to be included and wants to be included for that because it's it's a relationship built on 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 love and friendship and that going back again to a, a, a previous point you made and it's it's actually just something that happened a glance uh, last night uh, when I was reading something and it's funny you said it there about prayer and work it was a quote by a saint but um, I, I wasn't paying much attention so I don't know the saint at, the, at this moment but what it said was if we focus our lives and have our lives just on prayer and no works or we just have all works and no prayer well it's a faith that's dead because they have to go hand in hand it's almost like trying to uh, run a race on one foot if we only pray and don't put the our, our prayer afterwards into action or if we if we're only you know we're way out and putting we're doing all the action but we're not praying it's like trying to run a race uh, on one leg yeah and you're making a very a very good point really in that sense but what i would say therefore too in relation to that is that sometimes people think they can substitute prayer for good works and that doesn't work but equally, you can't substitute uh, the other way around either to say it's only about prayer and not to do anything then. Because really, to be honest, when we pray, we are transformed by that prayer. And we actually become more sensitive to the needs of others and become more compassionate. If our prayer is truly authentic, it changes us. And because we spend time in prayer does not mean therefore that we have less time to spend with our neighbor the opposite is the case because quite often what happens is we suddenly begin to recognize the needs of others which we may not if we weren't so sensitive or been sensitized by the prayer and equally god speaks to us in and through prayer and he speaks to us in and through the neighbor god is always speaking to us the real key is does my heart belong to god does it belong to God? And that's why the first fundamental commandment, and it cannot be reduced to the second one, is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Okay, that it can only happen through prayer. That is the essence of prayer, is to love God and let yourself be loved by God. 
then that leads to the second commandment, the love of neighbor. Because without the first, we run the risk. This can happen in ministry. We run the risk of using other people to meet our needs. It's our needs that are being met, even though it appears to be good work. It's our needs that are being met, not truly being at the service of the other person. That's why prayer always has a purifying aspect to what we do as well too. So our love is being purified so that it becomes more an authentic response to the needs of others and to the service of others. It's a very valid point you make. I'm just going to go back uh, and just pick on the point where um, you know, so we were saying that yeah, God will speak to us through prayer, but he can speak to us through works and through other people. Um, so at home here each night, we um, after a dinner, we 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 pray the rosary and and um, and we do it with the kids as well. But there's always a reflection. We have this book of reflections before each decade, and there's one particular reflection on um, the finding of the child Jesus in the temple the, on the, the fifth um, the fifth decade of the joyful mysteries, and it just came to my mind there as you were talking, and it said that you know. In it, the person was saying that, you know, we have to be, we have to be aware and ready to hear and experience God through even the most unexpected of situations. So he was, they were taking the example of, um, of the priests and the temple. And the last thing that they could ever have expected was to hearing the truth that resonated in the heart from a child it was just unheard of and yet this child walks in and the point they were making was that in order for them to be able to recognize what that that it was coming from god they really had to be in tune with prayer but then because they were in tune with prayer they were going to be able to recognize god through the most unlikeliest of sources where other people who weren't that in tune with god through prayer would have just you know brushed it away and said kind of get out of here and I think that kind of relates to what you were just saying there yeah and even if you go back to your own experience which you quoted earlier about your daughter Jessica for example that moment okay that moment where she reached out towards you and you recognize what it must be like for God the father to be towards you see in a way your prayer would have sensitized you to recognizing his presence speaking to you through his daughter through the lips of children and of babes, God speaks to us in that sense. And it's true, God does is constantly communicating to us. The difficulty often is our lack of awareness of how God is communicating to us or how God is being present to us. And sometimes even difficult situations, difficult situations, God is saying something to us in and through that difficult situation. But often it's very difficult for us to become aware of that unless we are tuned in through prayer in that sense as well too. I'm, I'm kind of chopping and changing here and jumping back and forth as well. But, you know, just going back to one of the points that, um, that you made as well earlier on when you asked the question, even when we sin or when we fail, do we actually, do we really believe that God still loves us in that moment? And if we do, excellent. If we don't, why? And I'm, you know, again, because of my vocation where I am, everything relates back to what's going on in our life at the moment. But um, I was smiling because at the moment, uh, our our second uh, child, Amelia, 
she is um she was one year old there at the end of june and she um she's the live wire in the family so jessica is jessica is is, is so easy going and really good but uh, amelia you have to be on your on, on guard with her on the ball with her so at the moment lana she never had to do this with jessica but she does with amelia lana's had to um you know introduce the bold step which is the last step in the stairs and that um she hasn't put me there yet but i'm getting closer <laughs> to it but she so anytime that Anytime that Amelia acts up, whether she, you know, she might throw something at Jessica or she'll bite, which is a huge thing at the moment, um, uh, or whatever, or she acts up in any way, she has to step, she, she has to go on the on the bull step, so to, so to speak, and just to learn. And she's been told why she can't do this and all that. But I was just thinking, like, from the point of God, when we do that, if we did not love Amelia. Well, we wouldn't be doing that then because we'd say, look, I don't really care what what, what you do or how you turn out. Um, do what you want and, you know, go on. But because because we're putting her on the bold step, it's because we love her. It's because we want what's best for her. And in that moment, OK, we, we, we love all our children. Uh, you know, you love all the children un- unconditionally and equally. But at that moment, it's almost as if you you love them even more if that's if, if that sounds funny when they're acting up because you really want to help them uh get on the right tra- track and sorry it's just that as you made that point earlier on it was that example that was that was coming to mind for me well what you're saying basically is very much in harmony with the gospel if you take for example the um the parable of the lost sheep you know 99 sheep the shepherd leaves them and goes after the one that's lost now, who in their right mind would go after one sheep and leave 99 behind? It sounds crazy, unless, unless you're the lost sheep. Then it's not crazy for you at all. It makes perfect sense that he'd come after you, looking for you. If you're one of the 99, you think it's crazy. But if you're the lost sheep, it's very, very important and very special to you that he's actually coming after you, looking for you. As you rightly say, this is how God operates God leaves us the freedom to actually go away from him to sin, even not to believe in him. So therefore, the fact that we have this freedom not to believe in God is the greatest testimony to what God is truly like, how wonderful God is, that he actually gives us the freedom to reject him. He makes himself vulnerable. But he's the one that never gives up on us, who will always be going in search of us. And then when you look at the parable of the prodigal son, for example, again, as you said, God is often found in the place where you least expect. You see, we we always think we know where God's going to be, but that's not the case. In the parable, where is he found? Where's the father found? In both occasions with both sons, He goes out of the house and he runs towards the younger son, okay, who's done wrong. So he's outside. He meets the son outside. The older son, who's angry and resentful, won't come into the house. The father goes outside again and meets him outside. God is always found outside, not in the place where we expect. And he's always outside because he's going after the person who's outside, the person who's excluded, who's marginalized, who needs mercy, who needs help, who needs forgiveness. He's always going in search of them. And what happens when he finds them and when they respond, 
he rejoices. As in the lost sheep, the woman with the cone, the lost son. God rejoices. So when we do wrong, God does search for us. He searches for us. And when we respond, we give God delight. God's heart rejoices when we respond to him in that sense. Because he wants what's in our best interest, just as what you want for Amelia. Okay, and therefore for you, because you love her, you have to send, set boundaries for her. You would do her a total disservice if you didn't set any boundaries. Loving someone and letting them do whatever they want, okay, is not a recipe for love. Okay, it's a recipe for license. And if you can imagine that child, if that child was let do whatever she wanted, when she grew up, she would be impossible to live with. She would make life hell for others and for herself. And other people would make life really difficult for her. So your love for her is to help her to set those boundaries. And as a child, she can't set them. You have to set them and teach her to set the boundaries. And we're always children with God. But just in the way that you would never, kind of, for example, you would never judge her harshly when she does something wrong, because you say she's just a child. It's the very same with God and us. No matter what age you are, in his eye, you are always that child. You're like Amelia. You're always that child. It's funny because um, at the moment of recording, uh, sometimes we, we record in different locations. At the moment, I'm recording at home in our house upstairs. Uh, and people might think that the reason I have the headphones on is to look good. But it's actually even <laughs> I don't know if you can get it. But at this very moment, I can hear Amelia roaring downstairs. I suspect she'd be put back in the full step because I'm at the very <laughs> top of the stairs. So I can hear it in this ear. So hopefully it's not coming across. But going back there, um, it's interesting. Like when the point which you said that God goes out and a point that comes to mind there is that, you know, no matter where we are in our life or what we've done, God meets us where we're at. Um, but if we're open to him, he doesn't just leave us there. He's going to bring us back into the house, bring us back into him. And I think that's, that's a very key because sometimes we can put ourselves down. If we've, you know, if we've lived a life of failure in the eyes of the world and people have been putting you down or family members or you just feel unloved that then this idea of being in a relationship with God is for holy people and straight away you're saying you're almost saying well I, I can't do that but what actually God is doing is the moment you open your heart to God God is like the, the father the prodigal son he's meeting you exactly where you're at with all the warts all the faults all the failings uh, and saying I love you you belong to me and if you choose with your free will, come with me now and I'll show you the way and I'll bring you into the house. And the other thing to remember is you're always more than your faults and your feelings and your sins as well too. So Francis de Sales says too that um, in relation to the sinner, he says, not every act of a sinner is a sin. We're more than that, and God sees them more than that, and God wants them more than that for us as well, too. And sometimes the thoughts we have about ourselves and the ideas we have about ourselves, he says, you see, that's where we have to be very careful because this is what gives the enemy the chance to get in there, okay, and to lead to discouragement. And he says, after sin, the greatest difficulty in the spiritual life is discouragement. He says, because the discouragement 
takes us on a journey away from God. He says, when we fall and when we sin, we don't lose much if we get up quickly and put our hand back into God's hand. He says, but if we stay down, that's what creates the problem or the difficulty, he says. And he says, and God gives us, gives us the opportunity to put our hand back into his hand, to ask for forgiveness. He says, that's why the sacrament of reconciliation is so important for him. He says, because he says, in that sacrament, you will exercise more virtues than anywhere else because you will have to be humble. You will have to recognize your faults and you will have to be able to ask God for help and receive his mercy and his grace and depend on him. But because God is the God that loves to give his mercy, loves to give his healing, loves to give his forgiveness, when we fall or when we sin and when we turn to him, again, God's heart expands because he can give us more. So therefore, he would say, therefore, that the person who is the greatest sinner is the one who can receive more from God. He said, we're all beggars before God, Francis Sale says. He says, we're all beggars before God. He says, but if you had a few coins in your pocket and you were surrounded by a group of beggars, he says, who would you give the coins to? He said, you give them to the one who's in the worst condition. And he said, and it's the same with God. If you're like that, so is God. The worst condition you're in, the more of God's mercy you can receive. That's a fantastic example. Um, and, and going back there, uh, earlier to an earlier point you made where you say, you know, in, in the busyness of the day, um, in our work or whatever, whatever we're going through experiencing or, or whatever, these, these, as you say, these text messages to God, these, these short, uh, these short bursts of, of prayer to God. Um, like e even just thinking back, um, reading recently uh, a, a description by, in particularly Pope Francis and Pope John Paul II, uh, on you know the busyness uh, of their day and how important that those short bursts of prayer like before a meeting or during a trial or, or whatever it is uh, how important those were because of bringing God into everything and in some ways like if we if we just reduce God to that half an hour or an hour on a Sunday morning uh, at, at mass or, or for, for, for any lay person uh, in, in, at the moment uh, online uh, or, or whatever, it's, you know, we're just reducing God into, the, into that box where God wants to be a part of, he, he wants to be a part of every single situation. There's nothing going on in our lives that's not insignificant to God. So these short bursts of prayer are absolutely crucial. But I suppose there's also, and correct me here if I'm wrong, but prayer then can't only be reduced insofar as to these, and I, 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 I stand up to correction uh, if I am wrong here, but that can't be reduced to just these bursts of prayer and no other prayer. So it, 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 insofar as I presume it's, you know, these prayer during a real busyness and you know, going to work, coming back from work and whatever, Going, or whatever's going on wherever we're doing are important but then we also need to be able to spend that proper time uh with god as well in prayer that proper silence that proper making that space and that time for god as well when the opportunity arises 
Uh, yeah, I'd like to reply to that with a phrase from Francis de Sales, and he says this with tongue in cheek. He says that he says that everyone is like a clock that needs to be wound up twice the day, once in the morning and once in the evening. He says that about prayer in that sense. But he also goes on to say, he says that we really need to do half an hour's meditation. But he says, if you're busy, you need to do an hour. And he says that tongue in cheek. And what he's really saying here is that you're absolutely 100% correct that these bursts of prayer will only take place if you've spent time in prayer. Because otherwise, you're not developing the relationship. You're not developing the relationship. And through that perseverance of spending time in quiet prayer, in meditation, in contemplation, in Lexu Divina, spending that time, you're being transformed and your relationship with the Lord is developing. So therefore, it will become more automatic for you in the midst of business to turn your mind or your thoughts to him. Francis Seals, in the introduction to the divine life, he says that at the end of your meditation, you should make a resolution, therefore, that brings you into life. So therefore, it's going to affect your life. And he uses an image. In those days, okay, um, the sewage system wasn't the system that we have. Okay, so therefore, when you were walking outside, like the there was kind of an open sewage system, so it was quite kind of uh, pungent to smell. Okay, so people often had a little sprig of lavender here. Okay, on their on their collar. So when they were walking past somewhere that was particularly smelly, they would put their that to their nose as they were walking past. And he was saying your meditation should be like that during the day. That at different times during the day, you need to turn to that perfume of God in the midst of the busyness in that sense. He also uses another fascinating image and it's taken from mythology. The bird doesn't actually exist, but it's a bird called a halcyon bird. Now, what was unique about these birds in mythology was that when they built their nests, they built them in such a way that there was an opening and they could actually be carried on the waves of the sea. But the water never got into the nests of the birds because they always floated on the top of the sea and he said this is how we have to be in the world as well too in the midst of so much busyness he says we have to float in the midst of all the busyness and the difficulty and the turbulence but maintain that openness to god so therefore every now and then we need to turn our heart our mind to god in these short prayers in the midst of our busyness that's a fantastic uh, image of, of of that nest and the sea. I never I never heard of that before. Um, during one of the the very early earlier episodes on this series, you spoke about that when you were doing your doctorate. You get up in the morning, you do your doctorate, then you do prayer, but it was affecting your prayer. But then you switch things around, and that you made you put the time for prayer number one first thing in the prayer, and then all of a sudden everything just seemed to click into in, into gear with the with the doctorate and it was funny enough a, a friend a priest friend of mine uh, Father Jim Linehan down in in the Diocese of Kerry he made this comment to me numerous times over the years where he said like no matter how busy he was when he made that time for 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 God just sitting with God in front of the Eucharist that all these other so many times and again that all the even if it seemed that there was not enough hours in the day but still you were resolute to your time with God, all of a sudden it was just like the answer to these, uh, to all these other situations and all everything got done quicker. Um, 
and, and, and fell into place uh, easier. And he said that happened time and time and time again, because it can be like we, we all can have the greatest of intentions saying I'm today. I look, I'm definitely I'm going to make this time for God. And then all of a sudden, you know, the the job, the job list, the checklist builds up and you're going, oh, gosh. And then that falls asunder. Yeah. Which is very true, and, and it is difficult. You know, when you're very busy, it is difficult as well, too. Having said that, my experience would be the same as that other priest's experience, that God is never outdone in generosity. Never outdone in generosity. And time belongs to God as well, too. And God is not restricted the way we're restricted by time. He's not restricted by time in that way at all. But we are in that sense. And we have limitations as well, too. And we've got to respect our limitations as well, too. There's not everything we, we can do in a day as well, too. We also need to recognize, too, that we have a physical body which limits us as well, too, in terms of time and space as well, too. We'll not be able to do everything, but we will do what is important and essential if we give that primary place to God in our relation with God and everything else will find its way it will the temptation for us the temptation for us is to believe that it all depends on us we have to make it happen that was my huge learning in my first year as provincial that I had to learn that I was kind of a, quite a driven person trying to get things done and doing them even for God but getting them done I had to get them done and like what I had to learn was, you know, I could be rushing ahead doing stuff, okay, but it might not necessarily be at all what God wanted. And when I stepped back and took that time to reflect and be present to God and to allow things to happen as opposed to me making them happen, sure, I had much less stress and things happened much more easily in that sense but it's difficult because we like to be in control our ego likes to be in control our ego likes to think that we're the important one to get the thing done or get it done whereas really it's god's work it's it's what god wants done okay and simply asking us to be open and receptive to allow him to work in and through us to let it happen that's why i love the annunciation for me that is all that Mary has to do. It sounds simple. It's the most difficult thing. All she has to do is to let it be done. Let it be done to me. And I'm always going back to this again and again. When my ego begins to take over, when I feel I have to get something done, when I have to do something, I always have to take that step back and say to myself, hold it a minute. Fear it. Let it be done. God, it's your work. Let it be done. That's beautiful. I was actually going to ask you at the very end about that. Um, that statue next to you with the, I was going to say, I presume it's the annunciation with the angel Gabriel over yes. uh, Our Lady. It's absolutely, uh, absolutely beautiful. And it was funny because it was a point was being made yesterday um, in the conversation I was having with someone. Um, uh, and again, it was actually going back to the, we were using the example of the annunciation that even when the angel Gabriel came to Our Lady and gave her the message and again it everything depend, depended on our lady's free will as we were talking about earlier on and and and, and when she gave her her yes you know at the same time she didn't know how it was going to happen what was going to happen what was going to the outcome i'm sure she was probably thinking 
what are my neighbors and family going to think? How are they going to believe all this? But at the end of the day, she was like, you know what? Put all that into the hands of God. Just give my yes. I don't need to know the answers to everything. I just need to be uh, loyal to God. I need to be faithful to God. Um, and that's that, that, that's a, a valuable lesson for us all. And just ties into what you were just saying there. I think Father Haas has a very good image for that. He says, whenever um, when Mary says yes, she gives God a blank check. It's always a very risky thing to give someone a blank check because you don't know what they're going to write on it. And when we look at Mary's life, like that yes, she didn't say yes just once and for all. You have to say yes and yes and yes again. Okay. And also what's important too, so when we pray, sometimes we expect God to answer the way that we expect. We have to give God the freedom to say no as well too. And that can be difficult for us, but to remind ourselves that God sees the bigger picture. Our vision is very, very limited. We see very little. Okay, And it's important for us to remind ourselves of that. And that keeps us humble to recognize that God sees the bigger picture. We don't see it. And it's to trust in God. And that's what Mary does. She knows he sees the bigger picture. She knows it's going to be difficult. Like, how is she going to explain to Joseph? Okay, what is he going to think about her? What are other people going to think? But what we notice too about Mary is that whenever she says yes to God, let it be done. And she is the woman who contemplates all these things in her heart, okay, who reflects on what happens and brings it into prayer, into her heart. She is the one who is compassionate because she is the one who moves immediately to respond to Elizabeth, who's in need. At the wedding feast of Cana, who notices the needs of the people? It's not Jesus. It's Mary that notices the need of the married couple and she turns to him. Okay, so there her prayer leads her into a compassionate response. Because you see, without, unless we can see, we cannot be compassionate. And prayer helps us to see. It gives the light to our eyes in order to recognize the need of others and then to respond. For anyone starting out on this, this journey of contemplative meditative prayer, praying with scripture, even just even with a simple phrase, I guess it's coming to mind because it's something that's speaking very much to me is that, you know, particularly at this time of lockdown where, you know, a lot of people maybe it, it can be a very stressful time for people. Um, and but people may have a bit more time on their hands now and even to be even to be just spending that time over the next days weeks months or whatever to you know what does it mean to belong to God and which God do we belong to there's there there is so much that can that, uh, that, that we can that, that we can get out of that and, and and can unravel out of that and allow God to to speak to us through but um before we uh, wrap it up for the union, are there any other points before we go to the final prayer? Are there any other uh, particular points that you want to make? There's one particular point that I wanted to make as well, too, which I, I forgot to make. But when I was talking about St. Francis de Sales and St. Jean Francis de Chantal, um, they have one of the most, most striking examples of spiritual friendship. And Francis de Sales says, is very important, he says, 
for people in the world. We're all in the world, but in those days, we're talking about people in religious life and people who were then engaged in, in the world. It was very important for people, lay people we would say nowadays, very important that they have friendship with people of similar minds and that they support one another. He says, because the world can be a difficult place. It can be like, you know, you can be like slipping on the ice and you need someone to hold, help you up or to hold you. So that's why it's important for us to have one another to support each other. It's very important in this world. And he goes on then to talk about spiritual friendship, why it's so important. Now, when he talks about spiritual friendship, it doesn't mean that it's something ethereal, okay, that it's not flesh and blood. He's talking about normal human friendship. But he says, what makes spiritual friendship different from normal human friendship is there are always three people in the relationship. There's you, the other person, and God. And God is at the center of that relationship. And that's what he experienced with Jane Francis de Chantal. Okay, so what he says is that God brings people into our lives. So he's the God of encounters. He brings people into our lives, but he's also the God between us. Because when he brings people into our lives, then through our relationship, God comes to live in and through the relationship. So when he talks about living Jesus, he doesn't simply mean that Jesus lives in me, but Jesus lives between me and the other person in that relationship. And together we bring Jesus to birth in the world for each other and for those whom he sends us to. So I just think that's a very important point for us to maybe to be aware of and to think about that the God of encounters who brings people into our life and the Holy Spirit is the author of such spiritual friendships. And that can be also marriage as well too. That same God that brings people into our lives remains between us and wants to be between us in that relationship as well. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very, very valid point. Um, and that I know in, in my own, um, you know, my, my own friends and the different relationships and, you know, how people can help you on your journey with God and vice versa. Um, and when, when, when it's people of faith that are around you, um, it, and, you know, your supporting is, is much, much easier than to be able to reaching out to those other people who have not yet experienced God. Um, like even in marriage, it's the um, it's the exact same. Like even at times, if you know, if if I'm about to be put in the bold step, um, you know, even having a having a wife that's you know is very much um, very much has a heart for God, very much has a you know has has a life uh, immersed in prayer, and even out of out out of love is able to say, okay, I understand this. You know, it, it was a situation with work or whatever uh, going on, and say, okay, but even able to to identify my faults to me and say, well, maybe this is what God is saying, and even simple things like that. But it makes a massive, massive difference when you're when you have when you are surrounded with people uh, who are in that direct relationship, a prayer relationship with God. Yes, it's a bit like what I said before about the word of God, that it disturbs us when we're too comfortable, but it comforts us when we're disturbed. I think even in a relationship, it can be like that as well, too, a God-centered relationship, because it is about our growth and our development. And it's about the openness to that as well, too, to learn from the other as well, too, in that sense. That's fantastic. Listen, Father Yunan, 
these series have been absolutely outstanding. The feedback has been so brilliant. And just thank you so, so much for, uh, for giving of your time for these. We really, really appreciate it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do something with you again in the future, because I know there'll definitely be a demand from listeners for that. Okay, and before we do, I just want to show you a picture of St. Francis de Sales. Oh, excellent. They say that I look like him. All I need to do is grow the beard. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'd even like myself, the hairline is there already. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Okay, Very so good. we'll conclude then with the, yeah. with the prayer. Okay, and since we have the Annunciation here, I want to make a prayer um, asking for Mary's particular intercession for all of your viewers in that sense, because Francis de Sales said, um, he's, he's, very, he's very good, he said about Mary, he said, Mary, if you were only queen and not mother, you'd have the power to help us, but you might want to help us. On the other hand, if you were only mother and not queen, you'd want to help us, but you mightn't have the power to help us. But since you are both queen and mother, you have both the power and the desire to help us. So if you don't do what I'm asking you, I'd be very grieved. Very good. <laughs> okay, so we'll finish with the prayer. Hail full of grace, for grace and truth have I been born, that I receive this gift of God and keep it with increase on earth. And so intensify the power of your son's life in me, that I may say with boundless love, for me to live is Christ. O oh Mary, teach me your approach to Jesus till I feel at home with him within my soul and love his presence there. The Lord is with you. Mary, may he also be with me. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God descend upon us and remain with us always, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for the union. Thank you.